I sent out an email to the group um, a couple days ago on Thursday just uh, with some suggestions about what you might bring up in your small group. So I'll just mention that now and then I'll share something from Tony Packer, a wonderful teacher. And uh, the email I sent out, I suggested that, you know, in terms of reflecting on the more subtle aspects of dukkha, of how the mind experiences distress, resistance, heaviness, to um, imagine that somebody young, like a young adult, somebody you care a lot about, somebody who's being really sincere, were to come up to you and say, share maybe a little bit about their life and uh, their own challenges, sort of working with their mind, working with their circumstances, and basically asked, what do you know about suffering? What can you tell me about suffering and the end of suffering? But said it in a way that, you know, not necessarily in Buddhist terms, but, you know, I want to be happy. What do you know about happiness? What have you learned from your own life about ease, about being free, being happy as a human being? And just, uh, you know, when we hear that, like, put on the spot in that way, we, we're, I think a lot of us at least are conditioned to want to have the right answer. Like, well, what would I tell them? And there's certain com- competitiveness, like, wanting a better answer than other people even. But instead of the mind looking for the right answer, using that question to help reflect on like what what does this heart or mind know about suffering or not suffering. I mentioned in the small groups on Sunday that uh you know if we if we knew clearly the causes for happiness, like how to participate in the arising of happy states, what we would be doing, we'd be setting in motion those conditions. So the fact that we, I think I can speak for the group, that we fall into states of disease, maybe at times visit states of happiness and ease, but that we're, not 100% in control of that, that should lead to a certain humility. Like, well, maybe we don't really understand how it works, happiness, unhappiness, how that all works. There's a, a good example of this kind of question, you know, that I suggested you reflect on happening with Tony Packer in her book, um, The Wonder of Presence. And if somebody's inspired, they can take this and scan these few pages. There's six pages. Um, and if you know how to group it all into one attachment, then we can send it out to the group, get it up on the website. But it's chapter 15 in that book, What Is It That Dies? Some of you might have heard me share this before. But basically, the chapter is just somebody asking Tony a question and then her answer to this person's question. So I'll read a little bit about it. The person writes, Tony, says, A few nights ago I was watching a TV documentary on African wildlife. 
In one of the scenes, a water buffalo had accidentally fallen into a mud bog. The narrator said that the animal was stuck there and couldn't get out. A pride of hungry lions spied the creature and began to sniff at it. At first they weren't sure what to do with prey that didn't run from them. Finally one of the lions began to chew on the tail, the water buffalo's tail. The poor animal began to writhe and wail. The lions then began to literally eat the animal alive as the camera rolled. And then the woman writing the letter goes on to say, What is the meaning of suffering? Why does any kind of pain even exist? Please don't tell me that it's just a thought. I realize you can't give me some magical answer or cure for suffering. But if you could just point in the direction to look for an answer, it would perhaps help. And the woman goes on to describe uh, the death of her father. And just near his death, she was with him uh, evidently, and near his death he got confused and had uh, visions or dreams that were really intense of being in hell. He'd come out of the dream and then tell her, you know, that he, this dream of being in hell or this dream of falling, 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 and just the fear that came up. And she ends this by saying, um, There are questions that have been in my mind for several years. What is it that lives and dies? Where do you go upon death? And a little later she asks, or says, It seems that the very question is wrong somehow, similar to watching a horse running on TV, and when someone turns the television off, you ask where the horse went. Going or coming? Going and coming. There's really no way to answer that question because it's, very premise is wrong. Still, even though it's the wrong question, Tony, what is it that lives and dies? And Tony, as a wise person, she doesn't ask or answer the questions this woman is raising about suffering, about life and death, what dies, what lives. But in her answer, she really participates in the Opening, Like one thing we get from this woman and that experience that she's sharing about watching the TV program <clears throat> where we see <coughs> and relate to this animal. You know, we all have some sense of that experience of being trapped. This is a common experience for living beings of being trapped, being in danger and running out of options. And really coming face to face with this deep and primal movement of the mind, the heart, to want to survive, to want to be safe. She says, uh, this is Tony's response, I'll read parts of it. Let's start with your first question. What is the meaning of suffering? Why does any kind of pain even exist? Please don't tell me that it's just, that it's all just thought. The writhing, wailing water buffalo is not thinking. He is crying out with pain, as any sentient living being with a nervous system and sensitive organs would naturally do. Rocks do not thrash about and scream when cut or crushed. 
They do not manifest the same sensitive aliveness that animals, humans, and plants do. Are you asking whether it is possible to be alive and yet not experience pain and hurt? Does your question imply that aliveness should be without sensitivity of pain in order to be meaningful? That there is something wrong with experiencing pain? So this is an interesting question. Like in our response to this young person, you know, to open up, to have a discussion, or just in our small groups tonight. Is pain a problem? Or some pain's a problem, but other pain's not a problem. What makes pain, dukkha dukkha, you know, this first kind of dukkha, what makes it a problem? Don't we ache physically because we are alive? Could we ever feel joy, pleasure, beauty, and love without being equally vulnerable to the aches and pains of a sensitive, tender body? And this is a very interesting uh, thing to own. It's like when we, you know, as we got tonight practicing, meditating, and we were noticing the birth and death of dukkha, you know, that place where dukkha arises and ceases, where the mind gets tight and then relaxes, is also the same place where the mind experiences a happiness and an unhappiness. It's like a swinging gate. You know, sometimes it's happy, sometimes it's unhappy. And the two, happiness and unhappiness, they're very much related in a conventional way. It's like happiness is when unhappiness goes away. And unhappiness is when happiness goes away. So this world, you know, of our conventional happiness and unhappiness is just It's just a realm of being a sensitive being. Sometimes we're hot and then we put water on us and we cool down and it feels good. It's then, you know, the the water evaporates and we're hot again. And there's just a play, a duality in pleasant and unpleasant that just is really part of the system of being sensitive. I mean, we can't really imagine being sensitive and not having that play, that movement between too much of this, too little of that, between pleasant and unpleasant. Because to imagine being a sensitive creature without this movement between pleasant and unpleasant, what would be the point? To be sensitive, but it would be like totally bland and neutral. So this is a this is one of this is what Tony raises in that, you know, in response to this woman. She goes on, she says, Now is suffering the same thing as experiencing physical pain? You were watching a TV documentary and saw the agony of a water buffalo trapped in a bog and being eaten alive by lions. More than that, 
You may have felt pain and horror in your own heart and guts. Pain is not merely produced through tangible physical impact. It can be evoked by thought, memory, and image. We feel pain when remembering hurt, and we ache when we see, when seeing or hearing about the pain of others. Wynne and I saw the movie Gravity this weekend. Some of you may have heard about this. It's just about uh, some astronauts being trapped in outer space and trying to get back. And it's one of those uh, typical, not really horror movies, but I don't know what you call them, but blockbuster that just know how to play with your emotions, you know, like to show images of vulnerability and struggle where you feel connected to that experience. And, you know, the intensity of wanting somebody to be able to grab something, you know, they're untethered in space and they're trying to get back in the spaceship and... And this is what happens, you know, when we see, like, the, doc- the nature documentary that this woman saw, or any thing, just seeing our friend who is suffering because their relationship isn't working well, or their job isn't working well, and, you know, that feeling, this is why we often misspeak and do inappropriate things with our friends, because we just can't relax with their struggles. We need, we feel personally, I mean, not wisely, but personally, like, I have to grab them and say, you know, break up with this person, or tell this person you love them, or, you know, get your act together and get a job. And it's not that, it's not their suffering that we can't handle. It's our own suffering in our heart that we can't handle. We can't make, in a sense, space for it. So that's what Tony's pointing out, is so take a look that you we conventionally say, I care about that water buffalo. But the truth is, our heart hurts right here and now. And in a sense, it's our first responsibility. How are we relating to this terror in my heart, this tightness in my heart watching this video? And this is useful for us. I Somebody sent me a uh, clip on, on the internet today. Maybe it's going around. It's quite good. Just a maybe four-minute clip. I think it was a scientist. I forget who it was talking about global warming. And its recent clip just came out a week ago or so. And evidently, according to this person and what he reported, there were a number of tipping points that have just recently in the last six months been crossed uh, in a way that surprised a lot of the climate scientists. Um, and some of them, the, uh, the majority of them are irreversible. Like, it doesn't really matter what humans do at this point. This is a self-reinforcing like pattern that uh, has been triggered. So the guy just lays this out in a, in a very straightforward way, non-emotional way. And then the last two minutes of this short video... He's just reflecting, this person is just reflecting on uh, how he holds this information. And he talks about the experience of uh, being with people in hospice. And he uses that image like, that's how I'm finding it useful to relate. Like when people 
or around somebody who's in hospice, a good friend, a parent, or maybe they themselves are in hospice, it, our life changes when you're around somebody who's close to death. And everybody knows that everybody is kind of on the same page about that. It's just, it's easier to, well, first of all, we're not so superficial. Things that we'd normally be obsessing about aren't, just don't even make a blip on the radar screen. We're just, we don't care about it. Like, you can go for weeks and not care about reading the news when you're around a situation like that. And what really matters is what's here and now and the relationship, the relationships that we have with what's here and now, the people we're around, the quality of love, the generosity of making space for people and where they're at and how they are. And I know it's almost a cliche to say this, but, but I thought it was so interesting and, <clears throat> excuse me, an instructive point that he was making, this person was making, but like, yeah, that, that actually, I mean, regardless of whether there's actually a global climate crisis or not, that's a really useful way to relate to our human experience as if we're in hospice. And in a very real sense, that's true. I mean, we're all here in a sense, waiting until we're not here anymore. And if we remember that, things change for us. I want to read a little bit more of this. So a little later, Tony says, Does your question, what is the meaning of suffering, imply that you are questioning why sentient beings cause each other endless pain and suffering? Religious teachers throughout the ages have taught that suffering is necessary for spiritual growth and deliverance. Is that so? I can see no deliverance in suffering itself. Just a moment ago, we looked at the birth of suffering as the intellect takes over, weaving words and picture stories around the occurrence of pain, creating the sufferer and thus intensifying and solidifying the agony. So she's talking again about we observe the water buffalo, and then what does our mind do with that? Like, and how does it intensify the ordinary and unavoidable um, pain of, of recognizing suffering in another animal or another being? How does the mind intensify that? She goes on, she says, We also ask what happens when painful experience is unconditionally met in an innocent way. Could that be the ending of suffering? We also ask what happens when painful experience is unconditionally met in an innocent way. Could that be the ending of suffering? Can we experiment with this directly as pain arises and ideas are seen weaving around and about that pain. What happens as the story weaving becomes more and more transparent in awareness? And then a little later, as we watch the seemingly absurd cruelty of life inflicted by life upon itself, the question, what is the meaning of it all, becomes a profound one to ponder. Will one wonder deeply while leaving it alone at the same time? 
not expecting theories, opinions, or beliefs uh, for answers. Can a, can a question be held in the darkness of not knowing? And this is the mistake, I think, you know, we've talked about how, or the Buddha has said, you know, it's the not knowing dukkha that is the cause of dukkha, the not seeing the process of stress arising that is the cause for it. And this is, uh, the condition is really how when there is stress, you know, in one way or another, we think about it. We process it in our conditioned ways. And it's that way that we process, understand pain, mental or physical pain, that is the cause for its continuation. In, in Buddhism, you know, we paint a, a really profound, or the Buddha and others have painted a really profound picture of this, these cycles of suffering not just being within this life, but over and over again. And I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the Dalai Lama has this phrase, this um, practicing in order to develop some sense of an aversion to samsara. As if this is a, this would be a wholesome, like, that's juxtaposed to what Tony Packer was talking about, where we're holding the question, you know, what's the meaning of all this suffering? What does she say again? Holding that, can the question be held in the darkness of not knowing? So, this is true with any experience of dukkha. It's like the f- when the mind is tight, when the mind is afraid, when the mind feels a, like a longing, we want, we desperately want, the mind is strongly compelled to create personal meaning out of that natural and unavoidable ache that sensitive beings sometimes experience. So the question is, can we have the ordinary unavoidable aches, the ordinary mental and physical pain, without demanding meaning, like somebody to give me meaning or me to create meaning, or just sort of reacting to the pain with this compulsion to have meaning about it? that that may be what perpetuates it. There's a famous sutta discourse from the Buddha that came from, came shortly after his awakening. It was said he sat near the root of the Bodhi tree in that general area for seven days in one session, sensitive to the bliss of release. So his mind, obviously very refined state. Then with the passing of the seven days, after emerging from that concentration, the Buddha surveyed the world with the eye of an awakened one. As he did so, he saw living beings burning with the many fevers and a flame with the many fires born of passion, aversion, and delusion. So this is that passion, aversion, and delusion, what 
what's called in the tradition the three unwholesome roots, they're born from this basic ignorance around dukkha, thinking that the mind needs to do something about dukkha, personally do something about dukkha. That's the passion, aversion, and delusion. So he, he sees psychically the world of living beings burning with that. And he says, he came up, this arose in his mind. This world is burning, afflicted by contact. It calls disease, dis-ease, a self. By whatever means it construes anything, it becomes otherwise than that. Becoming otherwise, the world is attached to becoming, afflicted by becoming, and yet delights in that very becoming. Where there is delight, there is fear. What one fears is stressful. This holy life is lived for the abandoning of becoming. Whatever contemplatives say that liberation from becoming is by means of becoming, all of them are not released from becoming, I say. Right? So if you think that we're going to get free from what ails us by becoming enlightened, then that's not the way the Buddha says. And whatever contemplatives say that escape from becoming is by means of non-becoming, all of them have not escaped from becoming, I say. Because both are just more attempts to escape dukkha. That's the meaning that, that's the trap we fall into. We experience dukkha, mental stress, and we personally want to escape it. And it's that relationship with mental stress, personally wanting to escape it, that's the cause for it to continue. He ends this passage or this discourse saying, for this stress comes into play in dependence on every acquisition, everything the mind takes personally. Continues, with the ending of every clinging, there is no stress coming into play. Look at this world. Beings afflicted with thick ignorance are unreleased from passion for what has come to be. All livings, all levels of becoming anywhere in any way are inconstant, stressful, subject to change. Seeing this as it's come to be with right discernment, one abandons craving for becoming. One doesn't delight in non-becoming. From the total ending of craving comes a fading and cessation without remainder, unbinding. For a practitioner unbound through lack of clinging, there's no further becoming. One has conquered Mara, won the battle, having gone beyond becomings. And this is what we can practice. I mean, it may sound abstract, but... We can actually practice this when we're sitting, you know, at home here at the center or just living our life and something disturbing arises and we notice the mind is disturbed. We can also notice the reflexive habit to do something, to take that disturbance personally, wanting to personally make it cease. And we can notice that that's the second arrow, you know, that we talked about earlier in the course. Not liking dukkha is also dukkha. Thinking that there's nothing to do about dukkha is dukkha. You know, sort of being resigned to it is dukkha. So this cessation of becoming, it, it involves 
it demands actually uh, a respecting of the sensitivity to dukkha, right? The opposite of trying to escape it. So when we talk about like opening to pain, it's because it's liberating to open to pain. By, by opening the heart, the mind, basically we're allowing the sensitivity to the unavoidable pain that arises in the mind and body. We're allowing that to be, we're ceasing all subtle and not so subtle attempts to escape it. So we have to practice this non-becoming, which the way is to include, to not be afraid of being a sensitive being. I didn't read this, but in uh, that chapter, maybe we'll get it out to everybody from Tony Packer's book. She she asked some more questions. You know, she asked questions about the lions and the water buffalo and that whole dynamic. Like maybe there's different ways to relate to that. Whether we're the lion or the water buffalo or the one watching the lions and the buffalo. Maybe there's a way to not uh, create boundaries or barriers or duality in that experience. I mean, when we experience a lot of pain, we have two choices, basically. Through samadhi or good drugs, we can create some distance from the experience of pain. You know, concentrating the mind or chemically disconnecting the mind from the pain receptors or neurons or whatever the pain meds do these days, we get some distance. That's one thing we can do. The other thing we can do is we can loosen up, liberate the identity of the one who is experiencing the pain. There is still sensitivity to the pain, but there doesn't need to be this construction of the one who is experiencing the pain. It's like it's removing the center, so there's pain, but the pain doesn't belong to any center, to any point. The mind creates that point, establishes it, and then experiences the vulnerability when things that are unpleasant occur, because it's created the one who is experiencing the pleasant and the unpleasant. But the mind doesn't have to do that. One thing you can talk about in the small group, so like, what do you know about dukkha? You could specifically just uh, your own experience around becoming, like this addiction to becoming. It's like this is our primary relationship to challenges, painful challenges. It's like there's a juiciness uh, in an egocentric way. There's a juiciness to addressing dukkha, figuring it out. How am I going to solve this problem? You know, we are we have been we have evolved to be problem solvers. And dukkha is the problem we're trying to solve. You know, the dukkha of survival, the dukkha of maintaining a healthy relationship with our friends and partners and family, 
the dukkha of keeping the body healthy and comfortable, you know, all the struggles. And so it's, we have to respect how deeply tied up the mind is in this activity of struggling to, to control, to manage dukkha. So it's not about not doing all those things. It's about removing the center to all that. We're not going to change our conditioned, you know, the how many billions of years of evolution. You know, that has its own trajectory. It just comes with the body. It comes with this life. There's no way to change that survival mechanism that's built in physically, mentally. But what we can do is we can train the mind not to create a center to that activity of survival of, you know, managing the twisted turns in our, in our lives. So that non-becoming, that's related to what we sometimes call renunciation. We're renouncing, we're only in this path of practice, we're only renouncing one thing, which is grasping, clinging, attachment. That's what we're renouncing, this that when we identify or get attached, that's that moment-to-moment process of creating a center to the experience. And that's what establishes, re-establishes the experience of dukkha. What is pain? Even the pain of death, the pain of loss, the pain of shame, the pain of stubbing our toe. What is pain without a center? What is that experience? It's interesting, if you've been around wild animals when they're um, experiencing pain, I haven't, you know, it's not something I've seen a lot, but I've had um, at least a handful of experiences. And it's interesting, when you look into the eyes, I mean, you know, who knows how much projection is here, but I'll share it, and you can just check it out with your own experience. But when you're there in a relaxed way with an animal suffering, a wild animal in particular, you can sometimes have a sense of there not being a center to the struggle of that animal or to the suffering of that animal. It's like looking in the eyes or just observing the experience of the body, there's just this sense of it being a natural process, but not uh, being a center who is resisting this natural process. I had once the opportunity, uh, I was at my the place my dad grew up, a ranch and farm in uh, eastern Montana, and my uncle was farming at the time, and my cousin and I went out to get a we were going to bring in a, a cow that they wanted to milk, and it had just given birth. And so the way you do it is you, you know, drive out to the range in the pickup, and uh, you grab the newborn calf, and my cousin drove the pickup back, and I held the calf. And uh, it was just interesting to, you know, and then the, the mother follows the pickup, which drives really slowly back to the barn. So anyway, I was 
you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, I'm not sure. It was a long time. And uh, it's amazing how strong a, a newborn calf is. And just to see, you know, moments of fear in the calf, because they didn't, you know, it didn't know what was going on. And, uh, but just to, to see that struggle like it was, uh, it was like waves of nature. It didn't feel personal, like the, the terror, you know, I mean, clearly that animal, it was triggering this very basic, you know, terror, fear response in that creature. But it was, it was, uh, it just was very interesting how it didn't seem to have a center. And then the animal would have to relax because it didn't have a lot of strength. And it would be like completely passive and uh, not wasting any energy worrying. I mean, that, that was the outside impression, like just completely released. And then there would be this another wave that would last for a number of seconds. And then it would cease completely for a minute or so. And then like that, through the trip back. Anyway, I'll leave it here so we have time for small groups. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.